1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and set off a chain of environmental destruction. Columbus's accidental discovery of the Americas resulted in a flood of European immigrants desperate to reach the New World. The arrival of these immigrants greatly altered the American landscape as they hunted species almost to extinction and cleared lands for new settlements. When the Industrial Revolution hit, factories began dotting the landscape, polluting the air and water. As the world's ecosystems began to fall apart, the United Nations created the 15th global goal, Life on Land. Hi, I'm Rebecca, and this week on Locally Global, you'll be learning about how Christopher Columbus started a chain reaction of environmental destruction in the Americas and throughout the world that continues to this day. Hi, we're Colonists! A bunch of high school students from Muscatine, Iowa, trying to make a dent in the universe. And this is our podcast. Locally Global! The purpose of the 15th goal is to protect and restore the world's ecosystems. It promotes sustainability through careful forest management and by fighting desertification and misuse of terrestrial habitats. It is also attempting to end biodiversity loss by preventing land degradation and human impacts such as poaching, pollution, and the introduction of invasive species. Between the years 2000 and 2015, 20% of the Earth's surface was degraded. Desertification, deforestation, improper soil management, cropland expansion, and urbanization are all human impacts on the environment. However, the amount of degradation varies by region. In Northern America, Northern Africa, and Western Asia, for example, land degradation is still occurring, but on a smaller scale than in other parts of the world. Other regions of the world have experienced land losses up to 15% higher than the previously stated regions. This degrading of natural habitats is endangering hundreds of plant and animal species because their homes are being destroyed. Larger countries in particular are in danger because of their large populations that require more space for farming and urban settlements. Island states such as Fiji and Mauritius are doing considerably better because they are aware that they live on islands with limited amounts of space, so they must take better care of their ecosystems. Larger countries, on the other hand, have more space to develop and urbanize, so land degradation rates are higher in these places where building space is taken for granted. This rise in land degradation and loss of biodiversity is changing the world we live in and will only get worse if we do nothing. We have to act now if we want any hope of saving our planet. When Europeans came to the Americas, they brought with them many foreign species of plants, animals, and diseases. Unaware that these invasive specimens could damage the American ecosystems, or that with human migration, they were bringing many unwanted organisms with them. You know, these things come here, they don't come here and show up in the United States because somebody planned to create a problem. They Sometimes they just 
hitched a ride with other products that were being imported. That was Dave Bakke, a park ranger and naturalist in Muscatine, Iowa. As he said, most invasive species don't come to a new region on their own. It's human interference that strands new species in foreign environments. Many people believe that knowing something is occurring is enough to solve a problem, and we see this happening everywhere, even in dealing with invasive species. For example, no one would imagine that many earthworms in America are, in fact, invasive, and even in Iowa, you can find shocking examples of invasive worms. Earthworms! Earthworms! Like, who knew? What? They're poisonous! Poisonous earthworms! <laughs> Why did they jump? Jumping poisonous earthworms that, that are eat like forests? What should happen? And they kill all the other earthworms. Oh my god, I'm so curious. And they're invasive. Well, yeah, they're actually all earthworms now are invasive. Europeans were the general carriers of earthworms to the Americas in the late 19th century. They knew that they were bringing these worms to a foreign land, but they had no idea the impact they could have. Take the Asian jumping worm, harmless in its natural habitat of East Asia. It has hidden dangers to the native worms of America. And, you know, one of the things that invasive species do is they, um, they are very good at at uh, reproducing. They grow quickly, they grow easily, and they tend to outcompete native flowers, native grasses, uh, or they destroy trees. In researching these worms, I found a plethora of information describing their incredible toxicity to American ecosystems. My teacher, Ms. Hansen, encouraged us to follow any crazy leads we had when we were writing our stories for our podcasts. I started obsessively researching these worms, and this is where I ended up. I recorded this clip for our National Geographic Explorer, Gina Steffens, to give her an update on what I've learned so far. Well, one of the targets of the Michael is invasive species, and so I've been researching invasive species in Iowa, and one that I found was the Asian jumping worm. And the Asian jumping worm comes from, like, Japan and Korea and was actually brought... Um, it appeared in like the late 19th century, I think, and it's been spreading throughout the United States ever since. Um, it is a surface-dwelling worm. It doesn't burrow, like dig in the ground like most worms do. They reproduce twice as fast as other worms. They consume more plant matter than other worms, and they grow fa- grow up faster than other worms do. And so they actually will consume... Basically, they live, a a lot of them live in forests, and since they live in forests, they will consume most of the plant, like the plant matter, the leaves that fall to the forest floor. And when they do that, um, forests actually rely on having like a fungal decomposing system. Um, So they rely on like the slow decomposition. I don't think I use that right. But they rely on the slow decomposing process of the leaves to um, provide nutrients to the soil and help the trees and other plants grow. And since the worms consume that so fast, um, these jumping worms eat it really fast. They aren't able to, the the ground isn't as nutritious, so the trees aren't as healthy and all the um vegetation on the forest floor actually dies, which exposes the ground to diseases. And they... Uh, these worms make the soil very sandy, um, 
And although it's nutritious, it's all surface level since they don't burrow in the ground and leave their poop behind to like fertilize the soil. So it's just a surface level fertilizer. And so all the plants that would have benefited from um, like a network of fertilizer throughout the ground from the worms tunnels um, don't benefit at all because or barely benefit because it's all surface level. Um, the worms are also extremely dangerous to all other worms in the area. These jumping worms, um, well, they're known as jumping worms because when touched, they flail around and they look like they're jumping. Um, but they're actually toxic to other worms. They kill and drive out most of the worms in their area. And, um, yeah, they're spreading throughout uh, America. So that's kind of what I'm researching right now. What can be done to stop these silent killers? Well, apparently nothing. Once worms are introduced to an area, they can't be removed, so it's left to humans to prevent further spread of them. This is where people think knowing is enough. People who are acutely aware of the dangers of a species or an action don't do anything to stop the species from spreading or the action from occurring. Or they might do something once, like picking up a piece of litter and tossing it in the trash. The point is, the pressure to make a difference is relieved simply by knowing or doing something once, and it shouldn't be that way. Perhaps an even greater example of this is found in the illegal wildlife trade. That's the sound of a bird in a bottle. An endangered bird called the yellow-crested cockatoo was illegally traded as a pet from its native home in Indonesia to locations all over the world throughout the 1970s and 1980s. Its population dropped to a critical 2,000 in number, and one of the largest colonies of these birds can be found in a park in Hong Kong, China. So here in Hong Kong, we have a critically endangered species of cockatoo, that is not native to, to Hong Kong, but that's flying around the, the center of the business district of Hong Kong. It's an interesting situation, and I, I'm out there trying to figure out, you know, what we should do with this population, how we can support them, uh, what, what's the conservation value, are they genetically viable, are they healthy? That was Astrid Anderson, a National Geographic explorer and conservationist who has dedicated her life to researching these birds. How did she end up with such a crazy job? Well, let's find out. What made you decide that you wanted to study random cockatoos in Hong Kong for your PhD? Yeah, I don't know that. It's another good question. I've asked myself <laughs> that many times. You know, I heard someone say, like a famous bat researcher. Actually, it was at the Nat Geo Fest where I met Miss Hansen. <laughs> um, this famous bat researcher, he said... Your study species chooses you, you don't choose it. And I think that's true, you know, like, I didn't really ever, like, I wasn't like a kid that was obsessed with cockatoos or anything like that at all. I just was really fascinated by wildlife trade and its different impacts. And then the cockatoos kind of emerged as a really good case study, you know, because they, they show how they've been overexploited in their native Habitat, Indonesia, I think in the 70s and 80s, Indonesia exported about 78,000 of these cockatoos. Wow. Before, before there was like a ban, like, so they just really overexploited the population. So that's interesting. And then they also uh, are now introduced in Hong Kong and Singapore. So that's another aspect that I'm interested in. And there's the possibility that, so cockatoos have this disease called, well, 
they can carry a disease called cytosine beak and feather disease with wildlife trade again moving parrots and stuff around the world this is like spreading to different species and different types of birds and um i don't know that the cockatoos necessarily are doing that here in hong kong but i think that's another interesting aspect of wildlife trade so there you have it she was fascinated by something and decided to act and try to learn how to help those cockatoos and what did she learn there was a huge trend in the 70s and 80s to have these cockatoos as like fancy cage birds. They're really smart and they're also very noisy and annoying. So people either let them go, I think, or they figured out how to escape. And now there's 150 of them here in Hong Kong, just like wild. And that's just because of wildlife trade. So it's, it's happening everywhere, really. And it's um, varied effects. Some introduced animals have more of a detrimental effect, so they're classed as invasive, whereas the cockatoos I would term as introduced because they don't really have that much of a negative effect. And they're in the center of an urban sprawl, so they're not really affecting any natural native fauna or flora. The owners of those cockatoos somehow allowed them to escape into Hong Kong, now, in these circumstances, they got lucky because the cockatoos seemed to be causing little to no harm. But what about the other times when releasing a foreign species like an Asian worm started an invasion? If we know something, we don't feel pressured to apply that knowledge, but we have to act on that knowledge. That's how we'll solve the environmental destruction. That's how we'll end deforestation. That's how we'll eradicate poaching and the illegal wildlife trade. That's how we'll stop the spread of some jumping worms in America. Let's go to Dave Bakke. The outdoors is just, it's just incredible. I mean, there's, you can spend your whole life exploring. Uh, and it's great if you can go to, you know, national parks and different places around the world. You'll always find interesting, amazing things. I think you can find just as many things like that if you, if you for whatever reason, choose or have to stay closer to home you can still find beautiful areas and interesting plants and, and things like that. It's all around us. And I think sometimes people just have to practice opening their eyes and looking closer to home. Mr. Bakke is absolutely right. We need to appreciate what we have and not just take it for granted. Your own backyard is full of nature's wonders. And like he said, you just have to open your eyes, but don't just open them, go out and act. This podcast was edited and produced by Rebecca McNeely. A big thank you to Hannah and Marcos for giving me some great advice on how to structure my podcast. Thanks to Gina Steffens, our National Geographic Explorer, who helped me and my whole class learn how to tell a good story. And thanks to Katie Thornton, who offered some awesome advice on how to create an effective podcast. Thank you to Mr. Hayes, who let us use a digital art computers instead of our laptops. And most of all, a huge show of gratitude to Dave Bakke and to Astrid Anderson in giving their time to let me interview them for my podcast. Tune in next week with Hannah Pouts on Goal 16, Peace, Justice, and Strong Institutions to learn about the importance of free press, birth registration, and a crazy story about escaping international fines and prison time. <laughs> <laughs>